New Jersey. This is Low Fidelity. I'm Jeff Heller. And I'm Mike Labrie. On this episode, we will be reviewing Solid State Survivor by Yellow Magic Orchestra. You can support Low Fidelity by reviewing us on iTunes, subscribing to us on our Reddit and YouTube channels, and by following Lo-Fi Podcast on Twitter. All the links you need are in the description of this episode, but you are always welcome to share any feedback directly with us in the comments or by email, feedback at lowfidelity.info. Welcome to Low Fidelity. We have a very special episode. I believe we have a new subset of listeners coming to the show as well, right, Mike? Potentially, yeah. I'm going to be sharing this episode directly in the feed of my other show, uh, the one that I've been doing for 12, 13 years. I don't know how long at this point. Uh, So I run a website, in case you don't know, uh, for a Japanese cartoon called Dragon Ball. I've been running my website now as of this month for 20 years at this point. And I'm going to be sharing this episode in our podcast feed over at Konzenshu for reasons that I think will become apparent over the course of the episode. If you've heard the album title, you probably already know where this is going. But for those uh, Konzenshu fans that have never checked out the show well now you're sort of being forced to so here you go please enjoy um but we got some good stuff coming your way we generally have been reviewing albums from the late 70s and early 80s yeah we're like 78 to 82 kind of all all in there like a little bit before a little bit after but we're like hyper focused here right now very true and this album does relate to the first album that we reviewed on the show michael jackson's thriller which we're going to get into i love how everything just really ties together and that was one of my kind of like fake reasons for suggesting that we review this i'm like oh it all just tied together like even thriller and everything i mean i have my own selfish reasons but i i genuinely do think that this album is important to review in the context of everything else we're talking about wonderful let's get to it Yellow Magic Orchestra is a pop group from Japan who pioneered electronic music with an emphasis on and trademark for early technology adoption. Formed in 1978 by keyboardist Ryuchi Sakamoto, bassist Haruomi Hosono, and drummer Yukihiro Takahashi, all established musicians in their own right, the band's self-titled debut that same year fused orientalist exotica with modern electronics, a subversion of the West's perception of East Asian music, and it would even be among the first to sample video games. However, it was their sophomore album in 1979, Solid state survivor that would usher in worldwide fame and their status as influencers in the real sense of the word. The band's popularity and status would continue to grow after that point, but Solid State Survivor to this day is regularly cited as a major turning point in pop music and would usher in the age of synth pop. Jeff, we have a bunch of required listening that kind of sets the stage for this. If you need to know who YMO Yellow Magic Orchestra is, you have to listen to the first album that sets the stage for things, but I don't think that is the YMO that you will hear for the rest of their career. I think it's uh, an obvious starting and entry point. Where else might you go with YMO specifically? In terms of required listening, you have to bring in the Kraftwerk connection first. This is going to come up again and again as we have this discussion. But for good reason. Kraftwerk, the German band, also electronic music pioneers, they really did kind of set the template for what electronic music would become and the role of electronic music as much more than just an accompaniment, but rather taking on the form of music and its purpose as well. They are a heavy influence for YMO that's not disputed, as well as across Western music, it really does make sense for you to go check out some of their music first before diving into this if you want to prepare yourself. The particular album that I would go with, because there is a rather extensive catalog that they have, I would go with The Man Machine, because this is an album that came out just before Solid State Survivor. Mm -hmm. There is some reference to it, I feel, in the music of YMO to this album in particular. As for YMO themselves, Mm -hmm. yes, it makes total sense to go back to their self-titled album. And you only have one album before this anyway, so it's easy to 
transition between the two. So that debut album in 1978, good starting point. Yep. But if you want to boil it down to one song, Firecracker, absolutely. You think so? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think that song, besides showing what YMO would become and their take on subverting Orientalism, mm-hmm. in this particular song, it's rather cheeky because the Martin Denny original from 1958, if you listen to it, this is a white guy who is making Oriental music or Hawaiian music. Uh-huh. And you can hear that he's doing what he thinks right. East Asian music sounds right, right. like. And it's not just him doing this. Hollywood, of course, anytime you see an Asian character, there are certain musical tweaks that we'll you get into like later. The, the harp arpeggio come in it's expected and a little bit gross at the same time yep but we're gonna dissect that a little bit when we get into this album believe it or not and to expose what that means what does that really sound like it leads to some really interesting musical moments here too jeff i feel like i remember slash imagine a conversation i had with you where you mentioned sakamoto to me i had already been listening to ymo and i was like wait have do you listen to them you're like no 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 really are you familiar with post ymo work in some capacity with ryuichi sakamoto yes definitely he is is a soundtrack god, and that's probably yes. how most people know him in the West. For example, if you're an anime fan, his soundtrack to Wings of Onyamis is one of the landmarks in anime soundtracks. His work with David Byrne and Kong Su on the Last Emperor soundtrack, mm-hmm. and most recently he did the soundtrack to The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I saw like as recent as like literally today movies. Yeah, his solo work is it's interesting. It, it's a combination of different styles plus the quote unquote Orientalism. He has an interesting take on it, and he really does come up with his own styles while mixing in all of these different influences. He himself is not strictly staying to one particular place or time period. He stretches across all different times and kind of envelops that into his own music. And so, yes, I've definitely had the familiarity with him. The problem is that every time I've tried to get into his solo work, I have a very hard time approaching it. And I think it has to do with just how varied his styles are. Yeah. Especially with the album Beauty, which I was recommended by the All Music Guide. They would tag that one as the highest rated. I think Mm -hmm. it's four and a half stars on the website. But when you listen to it, I mean, there's, there's just so much into it that alienates a pop music listener that's really hard to get into, but it's definitely worth attempting because he's so unique, and I think that album probably shows it the most with the most results. Gotcha. Alright, for me, it's uh, by way of video game music. When you get into video game music, and I mean that beyond just playing the games and even just listening to the soundtracks, you know, we talk about some of the backstorians and the songsmiths in our previous episode, Music Discovery. So for me, it would be, alright, clearly I love Nobuo Uematsu's music. Clearly I love Yoko Shimomura's music. Let me go back and look who are some of the people that are referenced along with them, who are some of the influencers of the day for them. And YMO is a constant. Anytime you hear about video game music from someone in the 8 and 16-bit era, you invariably see Yellow Magic Orchestra get mentioned. So for me, it was, all right, clearly this is something I should check out. I've been looking forward to this review because I know that we would have two different perspectives on this where, yeah, just what you said, backstory versus songsmith. You would take that route to things. I would take the uh, note of the music itself. Absolutely yeah. true. And uh, I definitely want to get to some quotes from some of those composers. I think it's going to be not what you would expect later on. But uh, for now, let's just you and I talk about the album itself, and then maybe we can put a little bit more in context and see how it comes about. Great. And I think a good starting point is with the thematic elements that we hear across this album, because yeah. I just want to make note of two special things that I notice when listening to this. And the first thing is, while Kraftwerk does this, but at a very micro scale, and, and definitely not as much when they got into Autobahn and 
further from that point. You don't hear drums or guitar all that much in their recordings. Mm -hmm. They did start as a progressive rock band, but once the synthesizers came in, that was it. And they didn't really go back to traditional instruments. Here, there is bass. There is electric guitar here. Uh, I definitely want to talk about some slap bass as we get to it there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very true. And there is definitely some drums going on with Takahashi Mm -hmm. there. And I want to make sure that people recognize this. He is playing along to an electronic drum track Mm -hmm. and he plays drums live. That is something that most drummers would see as sacrilege. They're keeping the rhythm at their own time. They don't want to compete with an electronic rhythm. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's doing that here and trying to be one with the drum track, I mean, that's really remarkable. Not to the same level, but it does remind me of when I would uh, early introduce Anamanaguchi to people. They'd be like, this is video game. Wait, no, I hear real guitars. I hear real drums in here at the same time. I think that's something that clearly transcended generations of people producing electronic music. All right. I think with that said, why don't we go right into it with Technopolis track one. Tokyo. Tokyo. I have to tell you, I could not understand what he was saying. Just really? that one word. And because the vocoder is very heavy on his voice there. Yeah, yeah. Looking into live performances, that's where you hear the actual word Tokyo. Uh-huh. Not to mention the fact that it seems pretty clear that this is sort of like a tribute to Tokyo and its uh, technological strong point. Yeah. Think about where we are in Japan. We're about to hit the 80s. We're about to hit the bubble of the economy in Japan. This is such a hack analysis because anytime you talk about Japan, you feel like, oh, well, you got to talk about World War II the bomb that was dropped and you know recovery after that but we are hitting that point in japan's recovery where they are about to be an economic powerhouse in the world it really does feel like this musical we got it something that i want to add to that because of that and their recovery what you see here is ymo using a lot of international synthesizers now yes the japanese synthesizers at this point were not in high standing just yet you're getting some from i believe there's a canadian synthesizer an american one in there i think there's one or two in europe and so this is before the Japanese would, specifically Roland would come up with instruments like the 808 or the 303, things that would dominate electronic music from that point on. So before it would become domestic, they're using these instruments to sort of westernize themselves. It's a very interesting little play on things. And again, especially when you compare this to the first album, Mm -hmm. you can definitely hear the solidifying of their technique and their songcraft. And I think this is just a great example of that. No matter what's out there, they're not playing to the family. Like they're, whatever the best whatever's the latest we're gonna try it out and oh we we fully incorporated it into our sound already i do also think that this song in particular does a lot to influence video game music i still do some work on the genius website to annotate music lyrics and so i looked up this album on genius to see what annotations were already there and it was basically not to say that there are many lyrics here there are but right well we'll talk about that at the end of the album i think there's a lot to say about what little lyrics there are in this album the difference here though is that there is still kind of a format or a structure to these songs yep. that you do see in video game music, something I would call modular, where you have these motifs yes. that repeat. Mm-hmm. And especially in Technopolis, what I find really interesting is that these motifs would repeat kind of like, here's chorus one, here's another chorus, here's a motif, here's this kind of idea. And it would just repeat. But as it goes through the song, they would cut out certain motifs yep. and shorten them and repeat others. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like this evolving song structure yes. until it just basically becomes these two motifs back and forth and then they end it. And I feel like VGM borrows from that idea where you don't have your structure of verse chorus you instead have this motif then the next motif and then go back to the first motif etc etc and yeah, just repeat yeah, yeah. and yes we definitely hear that in chiptune music coming later out but when i was doing my annotations because there were no lyrics for a lot of these tracks right and so, so how what, do you do that well what i did was i just basically made a label for each motif and uh-huh. i would just list how the motifs happen in order interesting point by the way the fact that he reads off the letters at a different tempo yes which is funny considering that you would think well this is 
a structured music, you would think that he would do it to tempo. And when they play it live, obviously they have to do that because you can't have two different Yeah, you don't want to throw off all your other performers at the same time by doing something like that. Yeah. I've tried. I actually, I would do my <laughs> foot on the bass pedal yeah. and just say the letters out to see if I could actually do dual rhythm like uh-huh. that. And I think I can. I can get the letters perfectly right, but I don't know if my foot's actually doing it at the right time and I haven't yeah. even checked it. But it's just, it's a fun little uh, practice there if you want to try that out. But I find that really interesting because, um, again, sort of thinking of Tokyo as this electronic epicenter, you would think that everything would be perfectly timed. But no, there is that variation in there where even this is like on its own tempo. And I do think that they do these kind of techniques to subvert a few things here and there just to make it interesting. What do you think about the song? Again, kind of hack questions here, but I think it's an important one. We only have so many tracks on this album. What do you think about this as setting up the album for you? As a setup, it does some very important things where it brings the idea of that motif based structure. Yeah. Also, a couple other things that they do here that shows up in other places on the album when they fade out, they fade out in very interesting ways. Yeah, it'll be a a heavy fade out, but maybe one instrument will still be playing a little bit. Exactly right. The rhythm is staying behind in this particular track, whereas all the other instruments are being lowered. That I feel is also interesting because I think they're emphasizing rhythm here. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that, again, Takahashi is playing along with the drum track here. Hearing that in the first song Mm -hmm. definitely sets the template for the rest of the album. And I feel like they do a good job of introducing those elements. There are some things here that, of course, separate it from the other tracks, but I do feel like as a starting song, it's got the momentum going right off the bat and it's a stellar track to begin the whole thing. What do you think about the bass? That bass. (laughs) Yeah, that bass is terrific. It's just more of that. Yes, this is electronic music, but we're also grounded in reality at the same time. I think it gives it such a distinct style and flavor to it. I absolutely agree with that. Now, as we move on to track two, Absolute Ego Dance, I think it's important to look at who writes the songs because to me, I can sense who is doing the writing based on certain elements. With the previous track, Technopolis, that was Ryuichi Sakamoto. Here we have the first track from Hosono. And so with this, things sound really thin, really high pitched and kind of squeaky, right? Yeah, we start out with that whistle kind of sound getting the song going. So you're going to have that very high pitched feeling throughout the entire track. I also think it helps that we get that female vocalist that shows up in the middle there and is doing her own kind of ad-libbing off of this. By the way, the only words that are really in here is happy, happy. I know. (laughs) Maybe she even says siesta at one point. I think. This song, I feel like it has a similar mood to Technopolis, but I I can picture like rolling hills as they get going in the song. I can see that. It bounces along at a pretty high rate too. That's a good point. You would think like with the second song, especially with the first one being really... Super rhythmic, I feel. Yeah, super rhythmic. And this one continues that. They don't really change it, but there's still enough in the music that kind of makes it separate from Technopolis. Yeah. Again, kind of establishing that idea that this is a dance record. Yeah. You can say it's a pop record. Definitely true. Especially when we're talking about the birth of synth pop, basically. Yeah. I mean, this is very dance heavy in that regard where we're hearing motifs repeating and this constant rhythm is going through it. And when you get the vocals in there, I mean, you've got me. Seriously, you've got me on the floor at this point because it's just so hard to resist that kind of rhythmic beat that just rolls along the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But that definitely changes when we get to Rydeen, I feel. Yeah, right. 
highlighting one of the big songs off this album, one of the big singles for it. To me, this feels like the quintessential video game song on the album. But before we get to that, tell me what else you feel about this song. Right. I was alluding to how Exotica or this Orientalism would show up here and would be subverted because of that. Uh And definitely here in the song, I hear it. Yep, 100%. Now, this is a Takahashi composition. He uses the pentatonic scale, which is something that we hear in the Martin Denny song Firecracker. Mm -hmm. There's this thing called parallel octaves where you have a melody that's playing, but then in a slightly different instrument, something like, let's say, if your high notes are done in a marimba, your low notes are done with a string instrument. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of hearing that here where there is this high note going on, but there's also the same melody happening in a different octave playing at the same time. And when we hear that, that's usually what we in the West would attribute to Asian culture. So the fact that they're taking that stereotype built in the West and doing it themselves here, that's why I find that it's genius because this song not only influences a lot of VGM, which we'll talk about, Mm -hmm. but the fact that it's so influential means that basically the video game music we're listening to nowadays is a reflection of the West's perception of East Asian music. You know, one of the first connections that I thought of, and it's not an explicit one, I don't think it's been stated anywhere, but the breakdown in this song, I feel like there's an exact point, and I tried doing my own edit on this earlier, didn't come out as well as I thought it would. But I feel like you can cut it exactly here, immediately insert reuse theme from Street Fighter 2, and it just continues perfectly on from there. And at the same time, speaking about this oriental sound, I feel like I also hear Chun-Li's theme in here. So this is 100% an album that Yoko Shimomura would have been listening to and would have been influenced by at the time of composing the eight World Warrior themes for Street Fighter 2. It absolutely feels like that. At the same time, Jeff, Raideen was a video game song. Was it really? Later on, it got used in Sega's 1982 arcade game Super Locomotive, they use their own chiptune version of this song in this Sega arcade game. They're creating this new genre, this new medium, this new type of music, and then it gets back slash forward ported into being that a couple years later. And that's crazy to me. I love that. We've had examples like that before. Again, I, I want to bring up Anamanaguchi. They had a couple songs that uh, off the album we reviewed so many years ago, Domitropolis, uh, that got used in Bit Trip Runner when they were not originally composed for that game and then of course they would do the soundtrack to the scott pilgrim game but they're i just think it's so funny these examples of songs that were not made for video games but reflect that time and that culture and then get ported into being that because they just fit so well there are no lyrics here Mm -hmm. but i feel like part of that is a strategy on the band to and this goes back to their first album as well well there are no lyrics so that it can reach an international audience because if you're going to be singing in japanese already you lost the english market yeah there's a lot of that with uh, Japanese bands that they'll do either their first album or a first single. They'll actually do it in English. Asian Kung Fu Generation did the exact same thing. Their first songs were in English because you kind of want to be able to have that worldwide appeal if you break in that early enough. I have more to say on this song, but we're going to save it for some of our later notes and some of our comments. So stay tuned for that. Right, Ian's coming back around. But in the meantime, we'll go to track four, Castalia. This is our first mood breaker, I guess I would call, on the album. It's 
super atmospheric. It's what's going to close off the, the first side of the vinyl here. Uh, we have these off-key piano notes. You had a note here about you feel maybe Final Fantasy music. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, Is this like a, a dark castle somewhere on the other side of the world? I don't know why. I mean, I even think of Final Fantasy VI when I listen to this. Or at least uh, whatever Nobuo Uematsu does. I just I can trace it back to this, but it's not to say that this is the starting point necessarily. It's tough for me because I feel like this is somewhat trailblazing in kind of that exposition music. Yeah. And the way that it works is interesting because, yeah, there's this melodic line that you can follow through, but mm-hmm. it kind of loses all sense of rhythm in the middle there. It does. And so you're left kind of drifting. Yep. And to me, that's like a Peter and the Wolf kind of effect where it's like something's happening to this character. Maybe there's some kind of internal monologue going yeah. on. And that's the kind of stuff you would see in role playing games quite heavily. Yeah. The character is lost. The, the world has been. Re- I see why you're thinking of FF6 here at this point. Like everything's gone to crap. So we're, we're lost. We're not given anything specifically that I can tell. Yeah. And this is Sakamoto here. Ryuichi Sakamoto uh, wrote this piece as well. And something about what he does here where he basically makes a super atmospheric track in the middle of this album of dance bangers and video game themes later on. I think you need it right here, though, especially what's just come before and where we're going after this. It's a perfect transition piece and lets you down a little bit after not let you down is in the negative way, but kind of brings you down a little bit before we kind of jump into side two and get going again. I don't have a whole lot to say about it. It's not a fun song, but I think it's an essential song to this album. I would agree with that, especially when you finish off side one here and God forbid what we're going into next. This is really a good turning point where I think we have to get some atmosphere. And yeah, especially when the first three tracks are going to be these really energetic, I mean, especially coming after the blast that is Rydeen. Having something to calm you down a little bit of a palate cleanser is not bad. I just feel like maybe it drifts a little too long in parts. When I listen back to this album, yeah, I do stick with the song, but Mm -hmm. I can't help but feel that temptation to kind of move on. I get it. Yeah, for sure. And it's not a long song whatsoever. In fact, this whole album isn't really that long. Yeah, we're like 32 minutes total. Right. So we're not drifting too long here. It is an interesting side note. Maybe there's more information to it that we're missing. But yeah, I think considering where we're going next, this is a good way to kind of set that up. Our next track, setting up side two and setting up the rest of the album, Behind the Mask. Now, depending on who you are, where you come from, what time you come from, you may say to yourself, Oh, I remember that. That was like an 80s pop hit, wasn't it? Didn't Eric Clapton do that song? Or you may even say, wasn't Michael Jackson going to do that song? All of those are correct statements. We are going to stick for the time being. (laughs) Typical phrase out of Mike's mouth. We're going to stick with the original Japanese version here from Yellow Magic Orchestra. And um, just hold on to those thoughts. We have a lot more to say about uh, how it made its uh, trip throughout the rest of the world. But Jeff, this song has its beginnings before this album. So Behind the Mask was originally conceived as a song for a commercial for a Seiko wristwatch. Much slower. Yeah. But it's undeniably the same song. It is, but the arranging is different as well. Mm-hmm. And certainly not as engaging, I feel, as the... Well, think of it this way. This is going along with visual images of a watch. Absolutely. So as a luxury item with mm-hmm. this kind of music in the background, yeah, I absolutely see this working I can see with it. it. Yep. But on its own, when they change things around and turn this into the pop track that it becomes, right. this is a stunning song. We're going to spend a lot of time on this track. I'm going to tell you right 
right now because what I want to do is I want to break down the structure of this song, especially that chorus, mm-hmm. because there are so many small things part by part that I feel make this so engaging. And if you were to try and cover it with a lackadaisical kind of production, you can absolutely hear the difference between what it could have been and how it actually ends up. All right, let's get into it. Now, I'm not lucky enough to have the original studio masters track by track here, so I can't exactly break it apart from the original studio production. But I have been able to replicate it somewhat okay here. And what I want to play for you first is my bad rendition, sort of like a karaoke version of what the song is. Sure. So give it a listen. This is without all the special flourishes that I'm going to pinpoint one by one here. get flashbacks back to my Commodore 64 days, man. (laughs) Absolutely. So that is the lazy version of the song, basically, if you were just to reproduce it with no effort. I'm going to break apart the bad points and then what Yellow Magic Orchestra do to make it something that really sparkles. Let's start with that initial melodic line that we hear in the beginning here. That particular line, as good as it may sound, it is kind of empty. And also, it doesn't loop very well. That last note is kind of sticking within the pattern. Mm -hmm. So let's listen to the actual melodic line here and see how that changes the way that you hear it. So you hear how that doubling, that delay, Mm -hmm. is making it a much fuller sound, which I do really like. Mm -hmm. But that last note is going to lead into the first note. And so it loops much better than in the first version. But now let's move on to one of the underlying synth notes here and see how that sounds in the bad version first. Now, there's not much tension going on here. It's just the same note being banged out until they switch another key and then they switch another key. Let's hear the good version. They go to that lower key. They come back up. They do that because that's a lot more interesting. There's this tension release going on. And it's constant. Moving on, we'll go to the drums next. Right. This is pretty plain from what I'm hearing because yep. it's your traditional kick snare, kick snare type of setup. Now, what we're going to look at with the good version is something called four on the floor. I'm a particular fan of four on the floor drums. It's kind of overdone now in dance music, but what I want you to listen to is how the kick drum shows up in all four beats, not just one and three, but in one, two, three, and okay. four with the snare on two and four. Because that kick is there as the snare goes off at the same time, that's more of a foot-stopping kind of rhythm going on there. Mm -hmm. It's got a good beat and you can dance to it. (laughs) All right, moving on. Let's take a look at the bass. Now, the bass gets kind of confusing, so the drum is added with it. But again, let's listen to the bad version first. (laughs) 
There's nothing particularly wrong with this. The bass is kind of just there. It's, it's there. Yeah. It's not doing anything interesting. And when you have a rhythm section that's electronic specifically that shows up as heavily as it does on this song, the bass has to play with it. They've got to merge together a bit more. This is why a rhythm section, a tight rhythm section is so important because especially when you want to dance to it, if your bass feels disconnected from your drums, then there's not that kind of urgency to go and, and move to it. So let's hear how the song does it in the good version because I feel that the two instruments, the bass and the drums play together much better. When you've got the four and the floor drums with that bass that plays along with it, I feel like that's such a great combination. All right, let's move on to the last element here. And that is the choral motif, as I call it, because sure. you've got this high-pitched melodic line that is the signature of the song. Yeah. But let's listen to how a lazy, bad version of this would sound. That sounds like you're just jamming it out on a keyboard, just playing the literal notes to it. It's missing something, yeah, though. Yeah. Especially if you want to make this fit within the rest of the song with all these other elements. What's missing here is something that is, again, parallel octaves here, where they play the same notes, but at a different octave. Mm -hmm. But they also use a different instrument. And it kind of, to me, sounds like a Mellotron, where it's a fake vocal coming in there, like, a again, a choral yeah, yeah, type yeah. of arrangement. And this is different from a harmony, so it's literally the same notes, just being played on different octaves. Okay. Let's listen to just that melodic element separately here. So by itself, you can already hear that that's more like a vocal. It's supposed to kind right, of right. suggest that someone could sing this mm -hmm. or that there is singing going on when there isn't. So let's put these elements together. And this is what it kind of sounds like in the actual version. It's such a full sound at that point. That main motif really stands out because you've got subliminal humming of this going on. It's sort of subtle in the actual song, but what we're going to do now is with all these separate parts splashed out like this, let's listen to all of it together in the original track and you'll see what I mean. The fact of the matter is there's something very special in every single part of that chorus. Yeah. And it's not even to mention the sound effects that are going off at the same time as well. And I'm mm -hmm. sure the sound effects are kind of adding to that. One more thing that I want to spotlight, and this isn't in this chorus, but I do want to say that it's something that I feel did heavily influence a lot of artists going forward. And I think I can trace it to something. Yeah. There's this kind of swirling sound that goes on in the verses yeah. and it shows up in that last chorus as well that ends off the song. And it just seems kind of random considering that the rest of it is so melodic. So now let's listen to something I feel may have been influenced by this. Mm. 
that was Talking Heads Once in a Lifetime, produced by Brian Eno. I believe I've seen it cited that Brian Eno was, in fact, influenced by Yellow Magic Orchestra. Yeah, yeah Brian Eno would go on to remix and remaster and uh, work on some YMO stuff as well. Uh, there's a Rolling Stone article here, actually from 1980, one of the first things that come up. Predictably, the members of YMO cite Brian Eno and Giorgio Moroder as fellow travelers. I mean, all of our worlds collide here on Low Fidelity. That is absolutely true, isn't it? What else is there to say about, again, the original Japanese version of the song here? Uh, we haven't talked about the lyrics of this version yet. This is one of the first songs that we have real lyrics as opposed to implied lyrics or in some of the other songs where the lyrics are almost being used as instruments, uh, as like backing elements to the song. The lyrics here are, I don't want to say in the forefront, but they're much closer to the forefront than before. What I want to say about them is while I do feel that they're a little bit more present, I still don't get them as easily as if they were just singing them normally Agreed. here. Yeah. So it still has that robotic take. And again, Kraftwerk, we have to bring them up here because this isn't something new. Kraftwerk certainly has done this themselves as well. But what I find interesting about how they do it here, it's almost like they're hinting at the lyrics Yes. yes. in a way. That's so fitting given that the topic of the lyrics themselves has to do with just kind of hiding your real emotions behind a mask, predating this practice we would see in social media and appearance pushing that we get through hiding behind an online profile. Yeah, we're talking about XTC uh, predicting online trolls. And here we have YMO again, is the you that you present the actual you. Let's pause here and let's talk about this song's journey from artist to artist a little bit. As I understand it, the way it worked was Michael Jackson's keyboardist, who I believe Greg Gaines was the keyboardist, and then went on to actually do the song himself first. Behind the Mask otherwise was originally going to be a track on Thriller, the first album we reviewed here on the new version of Low Fidelity. From what I understand, it sounds like there's a contractual breakdown at the time and kind of conflicting reports on who wanted what versus what didn't actually get delivered and what happened. Greg covered it and it was a minor, moderate hit for him and then went to Eric Clapton. Jeff, what do you think about the Eric Clapton version of the song? Had I not heard the original version, I would be okay with it, maybe yeah. towards liking it. But knowing what came before it, I cannot separate myself from what I enjoy about the original track. That has to do with my appreciation for things like VGM chiptune music, synthesizers and electronic dance music. That is something that I've always appreciated, had a very high appreciation for. To me, it just sounds like something that could not be timeless. It is now permanently marked in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Because it comes off as more as a trope than it does any sort of bridging between two types of sound. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. That being said, I really do like the Eric Clapton version. I don't know. He's just such a good guitarist and he's got such good delivery yeah. that what he adds to it is unique. And I can't say that about the Michael Jackson version. Unfortunately, we will never know what the original Michael Jackson version was going to be. It's probably close to what Greg Fillingaines ended up putting out because it was not included on Thriller and now is a posthumous release on one of his later albums after his death, um, a remixed, revised version of what this song could have maybe been with that original vocal performance, but now modern instrumentation and arrangement. Before we move on, we should give credit to Chris Mosdell, who is the original lyricist of the song. Greg Fillingain's version, I feel, is going to polarize audiences here. Like you were saying, you had more of an appreciation for it. I'm, I that, struggle. That one's very that time. And yeah. just, I don't want to say it's low budget, but it's like, okay, yeah, you did your version of the song and there it is. But it's, it's filled with tropes. I mean, that's what yeah. I can't get over. And it's just, yeah, I look for things that happen to still reflect well on the time period after the fact. And this, I feel like, didn't age well. Yeah, I, I do feel like the YMO version has this timeless quality to it. And maybe that's what they want from this timeless 
piece of jewelry that you wear around your wrist. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. All right, let's take it over to Day Tripper track six. How interesting is it that we go from this epic monolith of Behind the Mask to a Beatles cover? Yeah, to someone else's song now. (laughs) We go from them being covered eventually worldwide to them taking a Beatles song. I said this about Drums and Wires previously, where I could hear songs that got a lot of attention versus songs that didn't. Yeah. And you can hear it in the fullness of the sound. And when I listen to writing or Behind the Mask, it's there. Yeah. Every frequency is hitting. Mm -hmm. Like just everything just seems to feel so well enveloped. And when we get to Day Tripper, it kind of separates itself once again, where Takahashi's vocal is there, but it's kind of tinny and the guitar solo is high in the treble. We don't get a lot of low end here. There's not a lot of bass, but I actually really love this track. (laughs) I had a journey with this. When I first started listening to the album, like this is just weird. I like, I, of course I know the original version. This is super bizarre. And like, yeah, I guess it fits in with the style of this album. Now I'm like, oh yeah, I love this version of the song. Yeah. And it's, let's put it that way. If you're really connected to the original Beatles version of Day Tripper, yeah, you're going to feel somewhat alienated by this. And I think that's what they want to accomplish. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. They did want to accomplish that because they do some things here. Like for example, the fact that verse three, there's no verse three here. Yeah. It's just verse one and two. The other thing is, and you hear it in the chorus, they kind of skip a meter or like they skip a bar and it's just weird. I love that though. Yeah, I do too. Like it's got that interesting element to it. Almost like saying we're doing a robotic version of this track. Yes. I mean, it's like Technopolis where they're they're saying the letters too fast along with the song. I'm getting a similar kind of, I don't want to pin it as a rushed feeling, but it's, it's like, oh, something went wrong with the robots and they just keep playing. That's why I feel like covers can be a strategic move for a lot of bands because if they know that they sound very different from everything else, then they're going to latch onto something popular and move it into their sound so mm-hmm. that way they can sort of say, no, 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 we are still human. Yeah, yeah. We are connected to something real. And this is a good example of that. I wouldn't say it's like a highlight here. It's just a nice break after the seriousness that is behind the mask going into something a little bit more fun. I agree. It's like our second palate cleanser and then we're going to have another kind of downtrodden one too. But I feel like the, the ebb and flow of this album is kind of perfect all along the way. Anytime you get too upbeat, they bring it down a little bit. Anytime you get a little too weird, they bring it down a little bit and then they kick right back into high gear. Going back to bring it down a little bit, let's talk about track seven, Insomnia. What I want to say about this is this is where I see Kraftwerk the most in YMO because I was mentioning in the required listening that you should probably listen to Kraftwerk's album, The Man Machine, specifically the song The Robots. Mm -hmm. Lyrically, I definitely see connections here and I'll bring you an example. When Kraftwerk sings in The Robots, They're assuming the personality of their robotic selves. The lyrics here are, we're charging our batteries and now we're full of energy. We are the robots. When you look at insomnia, the lyrics are, I'm just alive between these caffeine eyes. I am an insomniac. It's that Mm self-awareness where it's saying, I as a character, this is who I am. This is what I do. And here are the scenarios involved. Granted, with YMO's version, they only have maybe one or two lines that relate to the character. Whereas in Kraftwerk, every verse is something new. Here's this cute, punny way of connecting us to our robotic selves. 
themselves. So I see the same kind of lyrical connection there. Whereas musically, yeah, it's kind of close to the robots, but it's kind of bringing in a little bit of the model, maybe a little bit of neon lights. These are other songs on The Man Machine. And so I'm sort of seeing an amalgamation of those tracks and YMO putting their spin on it. And not to say it's anything bad of YMO to do that, but I do find it interesting that while they may have been inspired to go on this journey because of what Kraftwerk already established, here this is more of a direct interaction with the Kraftwerk sound for their own purposes. I don't think there is much else to say about it though, right Mike? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I hate to pin things as these tropes, you want to talk about tropes, this is the part of the album where it's, okay, it was weird, bring it down a little bit and end on a high note, but it, it does feel that way. But I think you need this song here. It is undeniably a part of this full album and I don't think you have Solid State Survivor without it. How interesting that we end the album with the title track. I feel like that's not a common thing. I would agree with that. I honestly am surprised by how late it shows up and I'm not entirely sure where Solid State Survivor fits into all of this. Lyrically at least uh-huh. it's interesting but it doesn't really grab me as much as the other tracks. Yeah, Musically as well there are certain things that I don't know. I mean this is more of a verse chorus verse chorus type of setup here yep. but all that weird noise going on in the background when they get back into the original motif mm-hmm. something about it is just really weird to me. I feel like this is a brother song to Technopolis in many ways uh, and some of that may be the influence that I'm thinking of externally here but uh, I feel like if you put this album on loop this is a perfect setup to then go into Technopolis again. You know I have to agree with that because in listening to the album especially when my phone loves to go into repeat mode without me telling it yeah, to. same. <laughs> I know. Now I've listened to the album previously before then but it had been a while and so while listening to it for the purpose of this review funny enough it had gone probably about a minute into Technopolis before I realized oh wait this album has actually started <laughs> over. I know well we had been doing what like double album and other long albums before this so we're looking at 32 minutes going oh this is a treat. Yeah no kidding. The fact that it does that though is rather nice because yeah it does end the album well in sort of ending on a high note here. It does it's got a real dri- <laughs> it's got a driving beat you can dance to it but <laughs> it really does it has this consistent beat to it that I think really continues the motifs we heard earlier. I will say one thing about the lyrics and not about them themselves. Sure. But about Takahashi's vocal delivery. Okay. Between this and Day Tripper, I really enjoy when he sings. Mm-hmm. I actually really like the kind of benevolent tone that he brings to it. He's singing it not robotically. He's not completely stone-faced like uh, the vocoder we hear on Sakamoto's voice. Sure. He does have a human flair to it. There's not a lot of flavor. There's not a lot of vocal styling to it. I feel like this is a nice way to humanize a lot of the experience that we get on this album because, again, we bring up Kraftwerk. They're coming from the standpoint of we are robots. This is robotic music. YMO is saying, no, we're a pop group. We're just Mm -hmm. based in electronic music. The fact that they've got real vocals there lends to that idea. I just don't think that they have more of a sparkling vocal presence that would be required in pop music. And that's where I think synth pop comes from this, because while you get the pop elements of you need to have lyrics here and they have to be somewhat understandable and they're in English, I guess that's a big part of it, too. The fact that everything is covered in synthesizer glory and 
and the vocals are sort of downplayed as a part of that. It's taking that idea of pop music and treating it differently and saying, no, we're going to let the synthesizers be the main reason that you enjoy this, not the vocals. So this is the point where I'm sure the audience that is coming from my side of things is screaming at me. I would be remiss not to mention the connection that I have with this song. Again, I run a website and have for 20 years now uh, about a cartoon from Japan called Dragon Ball. It has a sequel series called Dragon Ball Z. The comic began in 1984. TV series began in 1986. There was a television special for the sequel series in 1990 that was, uh, it was like a back history kind of thing. It was about the main character's father. And it has an insert song, which is a new song composed for it. It's not part of the regular background music. And that song is called Solid State Scouter. Now, a scouter, it's for the consensual audience, I'm sorry, you know all this. A scouter is a device that allows you to read the power level of someone. So the stronger they are, the higher the number is. Uh, So it's kind of a play on that. But this is a perfect example of of YMO's influence and the ubiquity of all composers' knowledge of YMO, where yes, you have all the video game composers doing these homages, but you also have people that are doing TV series, like, well, I love YMO, and I have an opportunity to do something here. The the fun thing about this song is uh, we did have a composer in the Dragon Ball franchise whose name was Kenji Yamamoto, was, in the grand scheme of things, recently fired for uh, extensive plagiarism. Uh, Let go is probably a better way to say it. This is an example of not plagiarism, but just obvious homage territory. Solid State Scouter was composed and arranged by Yasunori Iwasaki. And the funny thing is, they say the vocals are by Tokyo. And just like Technopolis begins with someone going Tokyo, so too does Solid State Scouter. Now you think, all right, well, is it a play on Technopolis or is it a play on Solid State Survivor? It's neither. It's its own independent original song that kind of feels like a lost song off of Solid State Survivor. And that's what I think is really neat about it is that it's clearly just we love this we have an opportunity to make something and we're going to do it in that style and the fun thing about this song is that they made up a group to attribute it to and they called it the dragon magic orchestra that performed the song oh that's cute and so there's no real knowledge of who dragon magic orchestra truly is like it's probably just all the regular performers and artists of the dragon ball era but i have to ask you about something you said that they use tokyo in the song right yeah yeah but the backstory of Dragon Ball doesn't occur in Tokyo, does it? No, no. That's why it's so bizarre. And I had confusion for a little bit because there's actually a band uh, called Tokyo in Japan, spelled the same way that mm-hmm. they write it here, T-O-K-I-O. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, did the vocals are by Tokyo? So did that band? No, that's not right. It's the kind of thing where if you know what they're doing, oh, okay, they're in their 20s and 30s working on this show. Of course, they were into YMO. This is what they're doing. If you don't know, you're just like, that was a cool song. How interesting. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. I'm going to try to do uh, a little bonus episode episode on content you're just digging into the song a little bit more who some of these people are and some song samples along the way so just look forward to that as well a little bonus thing that i'll be putting out there uh but i think it's so important to note that this is not plagiarism this was just everyone was into ymo everyone's going to do their own take on it at some point and this was dragon balls that brings solid state survivor to a close eight songs 32 minutes ish and we're we're in and out i just want to bring up the fact and i don't think i made this clear with our required listening the progress progression of this band from album one to yeah. album two it's here. incredible but we have to address the fact that the band thought that they were going to be a one-off when they wrote that original album seeing that they got the success that they did with firecracker having to coalesce and figure out okay we need to have a sound we need to now become a band basically because they got successful this to me shows and proves that they could work as a band as a collective yes. of three seasoned musicians right let us get to the reception of this album yeah it won the best album album award in 
award at the 22nd Japan Record Awards, sort of like the Japanese equivalent of the Grammys, basically. Right. They did so well with this that they would go on and establish a career for themselves for years past this point. They are constant workaholics. If you look at their solo releases, mm-hmm. Sakamoto, for example, Ryuichi Sakamoto has a new album called Async. It came out in 2017. He's still going. He's been very consistent with his output. Yep. Takahashi is now a member of another band. Uh, Hosono also has done solo work. He has two tribute albums to him, by the way. I mean, these guys, they even toured in 2012. That was the last time we've seen them on the road, but they are very well aware of their legacy at this point. Yeah. And I mean, they've had a pretty long run of albums. It's remarkable the amount of work, just how prolific they are. You do not see that all that much in Western music. We're going to get into the further listening in a bit, and we have a lot to mention there too. But before we do that, I want to focus on some negatives here. Mike, we have mentioned Kraftwerk many times in this review, so we have to ask the question and answer it as best we can. Why not just listen to Kraftwerk? Here's the thing. I haven't listened to Kraftwerk. I have no familiarity with Kraftwerk. I came into YMO. I'm a little scared to because like, well, do I want to ruin everything that I already know? I have listened to Kraftwerk (laughs) (laughs) Um, and have not listened to much YMO. Really, I had listened to Solid State Survivor during my college years in exploring different genres. Yeah. Coming back to it for this, though, and especially after having my knowledge of Kraftwerk as well. Yeah, no, this this is this is a landmark to me. Consistently, they are a really good pop group. And I think that's the way you got to look at it, where it's like Mm. if you treat rock and pop as two separate genres and you dance between that line in cases, I think of Kraftwerk as electronic music pioneers and going into the electronic music era, bringing in pop elements later, but really kind of taking their own methodology, whereas YMO is synth pop. This is where we see the kind of 80s production and synthesizer use starting here, but much more heavily here and thinking of it as more of a video game music and more of a Japanese flair to that kind of sound. I see the redeeming value in this separate from Kraftwerk. Yes, there's a definite connection between the two bands. The way to think of it is not as YMO crossing territory or even Kraftwerk doing that later on, Mm -hmm. but them being parallel to each other and just taking different avenues of the same idea. I think what's so important about that connection with Kraftwerk is that uh, it feels like every time I saw someone bring up YMO, they invariably brought up Kraftwerk at the same time. Uh, the, The video game connection is so strong here, so I wanted to bring up two of my favorite video game composers and what they had to say about YMO and then how Kraftwerk came about as part of that discussion as well. First thing I want to cite is uh, a Retronauts micro episode that Jeremy Parrish did in uh, 2015, just talking a little bit about Yellow Magic Orchestra and some of their influence on video game composers. I think I'm just going to let Jeremy speak for himself here as he tried to make just that connection with Nobuo Uematsu of, hey, what do you think of YMO? Not surprisingly, Japanese composers are typically quite upfront about their affection for and the influence on their work of YMO. I've only ever heard one person in the games industry speak in less than glowing terms about Yellow Magic Orchestra, former Final Fantasy composer Nobu Uematsu. When I mentioned them to Uematsu a few years back, he gave me one of those, oh, you amateur looks, and patiently explained that everything YMO did had been done first and possibly better by German band Kraftwerk. He's the original video game music hipster. I have, I mean, there are countless quotes from composers that bring up YMO, but I have one more I, I want to bring up here because you're going to see the full circle, the way that YMO influences all these people and comes back around again. This is actually from a 1991 interview on uh, Smupulations that translated uh, the interview here about the game Dragon Saber. They get into interviewing Shinji Hosoe, who's a name I am very familiar with from multiple games. Dragon Saber here, yes, but multiple Namco arcade titles into the 90s. And one of my favorites, he was involved in 
the Street Fighter EX soundtrack. Ah, look Just at that. tossing it out there. We'll get back to Hosoe in a second here. But Jeff, why don't you read the quote from uh, Shinji Hosoe here? The next artist I listened to was Jean-Michel Jarre. I think Dragon Saber's music shows his influence. After that, I was influenced by Kraftwerk, YMO, and artists from that period. They called our generation the YMO age or techno age, right? It's the era that bequeathed us techno pop. That was my time. The first time I even thought to try playing an instrument myself, I was trying to copy YMO's songs with my left hand. It was an important first step for me as a composer. I love that. It's like it's an entryway for them, but it's a continued influence on them throughout their entire life. Speaking to that continued influence throughout their entire life, did you know that Shinji Hosoe formed a Yellow Magic Orchestra tribute slash cover band? Oriental Magnetic Yellow is his band here. So just listen to this little sample of not Raideen, but Raizine. my god mike i love that it's omy <laughs> it's like could you possibly be any more of a fanboy yet be an accomplished composer in your own right at the same time that's what i love about ymo is that they continue to influence but the people that they influence go on to such great things at the same time but never forget the roots and their influences we didn't mention how yellow magic orchestra got their band name but basically it comes from and i forget where i read this if i can cite it i'll make sure to put it in the show notes essentially what i read was that japan at the time was having this fascination with black magic when Japan gets fascinated on something, it's not just in like this one community. Oh, it's yeah. It's pretty much spread across it, the entire country. Yeah, it's countrywide, hardcore for about a year, and then it's gone. I think you have a fair point here, Jeff, about it being rather surface level all in all. Well, we've covered this before in our previous version of Low Fidelity. We've covered bands like Anamanaguchi, where my criticism of that album, and not necessarily a negative criticism, but just something to note, it sounds to me like chorus after chorus after chorus. And so mm. what happens is when you're going to hit me with that much dynamicism in such a short amount of time, I'm going to make it feel as though there's a lack of seriousness because you're not giving me that nuance. Now, granted, Castalia kind of goes against all of this because that is where you get the depth and you get the quiet moments where you reflect and it's that exhibition moment in a way. But that's sort of an outlier with this album, whereas everything else is going as a chorus-based structure, at least with the highlights of the album. Yeah. But at the same time, the way that this album has influenced video game music and different composers across across different genres here, even in just the way that they use their instruments for this album, mm -hmm. that to me says a lot about sometimes not needing to be as heavily conceptual. Look at me saying this. I'm the one who looks at albums and go, oh, there's no concept. Mm -hmm. Yes, there may not be this overwhelming concept like what bands like Kraftwerk would do, but being surface level also makes you more approachable. It also yeah. can make you more of an influence. And I think we see that heavily with Yellow Magic Orchestra. So if you need some kind of redeeming value in this music, it's that you're going to have a great time listening to it. And I think that and all the music that comes after it is something that really should be focused on more than just does it mean something. With that said, let's go into further listening. We've got a lot to cover here. And man, if you want to go further down the rat hole here, there is a lot to listen to. First thing right away, I'm going to bring Kraftwerk back in, but the last time I swear, and it's with the album Computer World. This is where I feel like if Kraftwerk was aware of Yellow Magic Orchestra, this is the album where they decided to capitalize on that. Because songs like Pocket Calculator, which by the way, in Japan, 
Japan is played as Dentaku. And if you listen to the album The Mix or if you listen to Kraftwerk Live, they will play Pocket Calculator and then segue into Dentaku for the Japanese audiences. Uh, and it's so good. Cool. It's one of their best live tracks. That influence of YMO did appear on Kraftwerk at one point, and Got this it. is the album that I think that proves it. Especially with a song like Computer Love, again, Pocket Calculator, Home Computer is a great song. There's so much on this. And this album as well would go on to inspire a lot of hip-hop, believe it or not. Sir Mix-A-Lot. I believe it. Of all people, too, has said that he was influenced by this. If you want to go past the pop direction and you want to look more into what would become techno music, look at Cybertron and the album Clear. Clear is an interesting album because it uses some very distilled electronic sounds coming out of Detroit, so it's very industrial in a way. Mm -hmm. And it strips away some of the melodicism. There's still melodic elements in there, but really it's about the way that the synthesizers work in the rhythm and the kind of sound effects that they use that make this sort of like a template for what kind of techno music would come past that point. Funny enough, would even come back into Japan and become JTEC later on in like the mm -hmm. mid-late 90s there. Next on the list, I think Daft Punk owes money to YMO. <laughs> Probably. I listened to the album Discovery. Yeah, and I can great album, but yes. Absolutely wonderful album. Yeah, of course, it's got its own flair with the samples brought in and the disco heavy production, mm -hmm. but I'm hearing a lot of melodicism from YMO coming into that album as yep. well, especially with Rydeen and Behind the Mask. I can definitely hear it here too. Yep. Lastly, how can you not mention VGM or chiptune music, right? Yep. Anamanaguchi, definitely one of them. Null Sleep, YMCK. We would not have chiptune music today if it were not for YMO. Just the influence into video game music later and then being re-influenced by that. But you can see the direct line. I mean, I think you should just go straight to Dometropolis from here. If you're looking for something relatively recent and modern, there it is right there. You know, it's interesting when you think about Anamanaguchi being sort of an outlier in chiptune because they have real instruments playing alongside yeah. the electronics. But that's what YMO did, mm -hmm. right? And they really do continue it past that point. Don Metropolis is pretty much like a sequel to Solid State Survivor in a lot of ways. Yeah, I Just can see that. Especially with a track like Mermaid kind yeah. of taking off where Castalia mm -hmm. leaves off. Definitely. I absolutely see a connection there. I think that is really worthwhile to check out. So as I mentioned earlier, what I, I plan on doing is uh, a bonus episode over on Konzenshu. I had done something previous to this uh, for a song called Battle Point Unlimited, which was actually another insert song in the Dragon Ball series. Just exploring its history, how it came to be, and that was one of those plagiarism songs. There's a lot to go into with that. Uh, I'm going to do a similar thing with Solid State Scouter and how that relates to YMO. It's going to be relatively short compared to that. There's not a whole lot to say about it. It's more just of a, hey, take a look at this. Maybe you didn't know this. And by this point in this episode, you've already gotten all that information, but it'll just be a little supplemental thing to check out. Music has been in the DNA of Konzenshu for 20 years. Uh, one of the first things I uh, really took up as a, a pet project on my site was a music database, which is cataloging all the music to the Dragon Ball franchise. And I continue to love it to this day. And this just gives me a fun little chance to you know, explore it in a different way. If you want to check that out, you can go to Konzenshu's website. That is K-A-N-Z-E-N-S-H-U-U.com. Great. So that was our review of Solid State Survivor by Yellow Magic Orchestra. We are always interested in hearing what you have to say about the topics we discuss and the albums we review. So join the discussion on our subreddit or send us your take to feedback at lowfidelity.info. Next time on the show, we are going to analyze and review rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Until then, thank you for listening to Low Fidelity, and we'll see you again in a couple weeks. From New Jersey, this is Low Fidelity. I'm Jeff Heller. And I'm Mike Labrie. On this episode, we will be reviewing... <laughs> I was going to say, I was about to say Yellow Magic Orchestra by Solid State Survivor. Yep, God damn it. Yep.
On this episode, we will be reviewing Solid State Scout, not Scouter Mike. That's a Dragon Ball song. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of material for the end of the episode already. Jeez. All right. <laughs> 